I don't think he was a visionary. He was brave and daring. He did what you know you're supposed to do as an entrepreneur, which is take risks and go the road that you're not supposed to go. Hi, I'm Gina Cerrito, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lynn White and Judy Licht. We're the News Broads, broads casting about the news and all things media. We're here to give you insights on how it all works. A look at the news you won't find anywhere else. Would you believe that this year marks the 40th anniversary of CNN? A lot of people still don't know there was a time before CNN. But the story of how it became an international phenomenon and the most trusted name in news is an incredible and frankly improbable one. It all started with a crazy, colorful visionary willing to take incredible risks against all odds. And in so doing, he not only changed the way we look at news, it created a whole new chapter in the history of television itself. There's a marvelous and juicy new book out on this very subject, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. The author is Lisa Napoli, and she's written two other books. She's a former reporter at the New York Times, NPR, and MSNBC. But for us, at least, I think her most important credit is that her first job in journalism was as a teenage unpaid intern at CNN a year after it started. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's a pleasure. What was it like then? And how did you even get the job? Well, see, it's so funny because people think it was so dazzling. Really, it was just dazzling because I was a kid from Brooklyn who never imagined that I could work in television. And CNN was nothing then. You couldn't even see it in New York. Uh, Very few people had it. Basically, I got the job because a a high school classmate of mine, I'd seen him on the subway station at Newkirk Plaza that summer while I was going into the city to work at a video store. And he said, there's this cool thing in the base of the World Trade Center where I'm going to work as an intern in finance. And I thought of you because it's journalism, you should call them up. So I called them up and they said, come in. It was nothing (laughs) grand or, you know, they didn't even ask where I was going to school. I didn't have to compete. It was just basically they wanted free help. So it was amazing because being in a television environment is always amazing, um, but especially for someone who's 17 and never had been in it before, of course, it was a thrill. What did you think when you first walked in there? What what was the, those first vibes like? You know, it's been a long time, so <laughs> I don't really remember it. I just remember it being big and, uh, you know, intimidating. I didn't come from a fancy family. I wasn't used to being in that kind of environment. Uh, my father dabbled in theater, but you know, I, I'd never been in that kind of environment before. So I just remember showing up and being grateful to be allowed in the building. Um, and it was busy and all the things that make a newsroom either freak someone out or pull them in more. And in my case, it pulled me in more. It was, you know, a window to a world. <laughs> So exciting. Yeah, technically, though, it was pretty rudimentary back in those days, no? Well, it was and it wasn't. I mean, it it, it was um, it was still a 
television environment. And it was, uh, I, I didn't know enough about television or certainly the landscape that preceded the creation of CNN that I write about in this book to understand that it was underfunded or, you know, not seen in enough homes. I mean, I, I knew what cable was because my father couldn't wait to get HBO, which we couldn't do in Brooklyn. But it wasn't like uh, I, I was aware, it didn't feel, you know, low rent to me. Um, I didn't understand that it was competing against, I mean, I knew it was competing against the networks, but I didn't really understand then that they had massive crazy budgets and could charter planes and paid incredible salaries. It wasn't, and it, you know, Mary Alice Williams just looked glamorous to me. I, you know, mm-hmm. she might've been making That's a fraction. Mary Alice Williams story. She's a friend of mine, actually. And I imagined. She's gorgeous, as you know, and she has these steely blue eyes. But she was fired from her job at NBC because the then news director, who lasted six months, thought that her eyes were too steely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Crazy. It's what a problem to have. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, other people really thought it was very, very unimportant. They all kind of laughed at it, the people in local and network news. They thought it was this also ran kind of place and that it would never succeed. Right. And I didn't realize that then. And this book is not at all about me. I mean, everything I've just said is basically, you know, it's it's all background by way of how I got interested in telling this story because it's so much not my story. Uh, It's a story of these people who took the risk to go to Atlanta or to work as Mary Alice did in New York at a time that this was all such new terrain. So- You know, I wanna ask you that question because because you you were in it for so long and and I know this story isn't about you. the lines that you you quote one of his brown classmates saying that he was bad and i'm you know putting it together loosely here but basically it was a package of dynamite with a little bit of a loose can thrown in so knowing that about him when you went in to do the research what's a story that surprised you when you knew he was this kind of why this ted turner was such a wild politically incorrect man. Well, I, I I knew that he was a wild man. I don't think I knew just how politically correct he was. I mean, when I graduated from college and went to Atlanta to work at that fabulous old country club that they'd retrofit to house CNN, um, you know, we would see him in the halls in the middle of the night. And the legend was that he was sleeping upstairs in between wives or girlfriends. I mean, that was what I knew, you know, that he would try to engage people in conversation as they were rushing in and out of the break room to the bathroom or to get a cup of coffee and then coming back into work. But I didn't really understand the, the depth of how uh, wild and politically incorrect he was. I mean, he was very what we would call today Trumpy, except for some reason there was something charming about him and disarming about him that even the people around him couldn't believe he got away with his attitudes and behavior toward women, um, his obsession with Hitler, which I don't really think was because he thought Hitler was right, but I think it was more that he was fascinated by him as a historical character and for whatever reason, like to cite Hitler. Skills is a- yeah. yeah. 
story is that you tell, which is fascinating because it's almost as if he's an accidental success. He didn't start that. That's a really good point. You know, someone has said to me something about how he was a visionary. I don't think he was a visionary. He was brave and daring. He didn't, um, he, he, did what you know you're supposed to do as an entrepreneur which is take risks and go the road that you're not supposed to go i mean my last book was about what well, was really about joan crock but i had to write about her husband ray crock which is where she got the money she gave away and he was very similar he was offensive and rude and you know he was not a cuddly person who people said oh i love this guy he was so nurturing and wonderful but he he and he certainly wasn't a visionary he just it was a right place right time situation he was a gambler that was really yeah. crazy. i love you yeah. know what he used to do to sell advertising he started as as the book points out in um uh, outdoor advertising billboards um which he inherited from his dad but t tell some of the stories when he would try to go in and sell advertising i mean he, the man was a loon he was a loon and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And if you said no, he would have a basic tantrum, um, but it was a very colorful tantrum. It wasn't just a whiny tantrum. You know, it was very theatrical. Um, you know, there was one story, I don't even remember if I put it in the book with a, a, a lady ad buyer. I think by then he was in uh, television and she refused to buy time on his television stations, which were UHF stations that, you know, were in her estimation inconsequential. And he got down on his knee and basically tried to woo her into buying advertising. So but yes, the, the, the men who traveled around with him, and they were all men and salesmen um, of ad time, just couldn't believe the lengths to which he'd go, the histrionics and the writhing on the floor. Um, yeah, yeah. That story was in the book, just for... I did, I did okay, read it. Yep. forgive me. I can't <laughs> I remember that one, no. No, another thing that um, I admired about him, and I think this goes along with what you're saying about him just being... Um, just fearless is that when someone would use the word because that's always been done that really triggered him when they talked about the 24-hour news and why do we stop news at new or because i don't know, think you know if a lot of younger people like myself know this but before 24-hour news it would be over at midnight and it would come back on in the morning and when he asked why that's what his newsroom said and i think that well, i no, would argue that has a I just have to, I, no, sorry. I just have to correct you. It wasn't news. That was when he had that little oh, UHF station, Channel 17. And it's an important difference because at that point there was, you know, no sense that, um, as you say, that the television would turn off. I think people of any age probably don't remember that there was a time the TV went off. At well, night. I think that's why I just said that too. I think I'm in... And, you know, just say 24 I hours. I mean, it's just, I, I know, I know. Well, here, see, I'm, I'm the, the token young one here. And I, I just said that as a Freudian slip, too, because uh, obviously I, you know, but it was when he made um, the television stay on, there was programming, movies or whatever that would go on past midnight. And I think that was, again, I, I don't think that was a visionary thing. I think he just wanted to make more money. He saw that as right. uh, uh, lost funds. Right. Why are we not doing that? It seems stupid that we're not 
doing that. And yeah, and that's again, the, not to keep bringing up Ray Kroc, but he did the same thing um, with McDonald's, you know, the whole idea of defying what the convention was in the industry at the time. And, you know, it takes one person to do that. And in his case, with, with the satellite and with starting CNN, he was really the second person because, of course, Gerald Levin was the guy who said, let's put a cable station up to the satellite, not to get too thick in the weeds of the technology, but this really is a technology story. And Ted heard that he was doing that and he said, let's do it. Same thing with direct, I, I think they called it direct to consumer. Um, they had a different name for it than, you know, Ginsu knives, basically. Uh, he, said, he said, you know, these other guys are doing it and they're making a fortune. So why don't I buy some schlocky proje- products like the super bad party ring and we'll sell them too. So he, he was smart. He watched other people and he mimicked them and adjusted as appropriate. So that was a kind of genius, I think. But Channel 17, which was this little dinky, as you know, as you say in the book, I learned from the book, you know, thing that he got sort of put onto by an investment banker uh, who wanted to get rid of it for a client. It, it was this wild place. And it was all that stuff that he, take us through it. I mean, it was just an amazing story. Well, that's the other fascinating thing. You know, we think that entrepreneurs set out to with a grand vision to X, Y, or Z. And in this case, he didn't set out with some grand vision to change the world with television or with, you know, certainly not with news at all. He set out because, as you said before, he he inherited this billboard company and he wanted to do something a little bit different. He was trying to raise money. Um, he was in radio. He got himself into radio, but that wasn't sexy enough. And some investment banker was trying to unload a dud of a TV station and thought, okay, maybe this guy will want it. And he bought it. He bought into this television station, not because that was his grand ambition. And once he saw it, he, he looked around and saw opportunity. Yeah, he, and uh, yeah, that's that's a fascinating Even the lesson. billboard, part of that, right? He had that knowledge of the billboard business and he said, I could do this on TV with moving images. And then came the infomercials, the commercials, and it changed the way that people who had those companies were paid and it boosted the revenue, right? Eventually along the way. But what's also important to remember, no matter what the age of someone listening to this is, is that television, you know, this is like talking about the internet when I was covering it at the New York Times in the late 90s. It was so nascent at that point. I mean, it wasn't brand new, but it was still emerging. And there were still so many things happening in the industry that, uh, you know, what it wasn't a fully mature industry. And so he did that. Um, at a time when it would be much harder for someone who'd entered the field later to do. And that's a really critical part of all of this, I think. And then came the Reagan shooting, right? And that changed everything. Right, but that's fast forwarding. I'm curious about the mix of programming, the crazy mix of programming that um, that the, the station had. I mean, it was it was laughable to most people. Well, it's also hard for people to remember that there was a time that in every market, in every bigger market, there were the three network affiliates. You know, if you were lucky, you had the three network affiliates and you might have a local station that added some other 
possibilities to your viewing uh, pleasure. But there wasn't that, you know, this is before cable. This is this is it. When you came home from work and you turned on the TV, you had ABC, NBC, CBS, and maybe a local station that played off-network stuff, off-network movies. This is before you could stream a movie in your bed, on your iPhone, whenever t- whatever time you wanted, uh, you know, see anything you wanted in the world that was just not possible. So all you had on that set in your television, in, in your living room was maybe five channels if you were like, oh, and then, you know, public television, which I'm writing about right now, public radio um, formed in 1970. And that added another thing for you to watch. But it wasn't like there was a, a whole host of things to see. And so it's really hard for us to remember that time, which is why I take so many asides um, in the evolution of television, because it's really, it was important for me to know that. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't alive for the whole period that I'm writing about, but it's um, it's hard for us to imagine that that little independent station was actually a, a gold mine for the viewer as well as for a potential advertiser of a certain sort because right. they couldn't afford to buy on the CBS affiliate so they bought you know local ads on their local station um, so that's that's another thing that is really complicated to to well and that has to do with that over that overnight stuff that I was saying is that you know people are awake someone like Ted Turner who is an insomniac I mean you know they are awake at two three in the morning people do get up at five and go to work and I think that just seeing that and envisioning that is really I mean that seems to be a turning point in how he saw everything to me. What? Yeah no and that's why I thought this book was so important to write right now because people do forget that the media landscape has changed so indelibly um, in our lifetime. I'm 56. I've seen in my lifetime, as my career has moved ahead, or not necessarily moved ahead, it's kind of flatlined, but I've had this really strange life. I've I've paralleled a lot of um, the major technologies, as anybody working in that time frame would have. And it's... um, it's so easy not to remember that. And then when you step back and you think, okay, here I am sitting in this office in West Boca Raton, Florida of my late father with a laptop and I'm talking to you and you're all in different places. And all it required was going like this on my computer. You know, that's mind blowing. We forget that how how mind blowing that was. And when CNN started in 1980, uh, it was revolutionary to be able to pull up a truck and beam up around the country from that truck or beam back to Atlanta, which then got beamed out to the country. That's amazing. But it's the technology it, project. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, we we did a, a, a podcast on Roger Ailes and we talked about Fox News being the revenge project. This is really was the technology project. It was. And that's why, frankly, I had a hard time selling this book, because if this had been a book about, um, you know, Ted Turner set out to, you know, everybody thinks that Ted Turner was married to Jane Fonda then. He wasn't. He didn't even know Jane Fonda then. Um, This is not about politics or I I wanted to start a 24-hour news channel so I could dominate the conversation. Not at all. It was really, I want to start a 24-hour news 
channel because I can't do an entertainment channel because somebody else is already doing it and it's too hard. And I can't do a sports channel because I can't steal the sports that I'm airing on my UHF, you know, channel 17. And no one thinks music will work. So, okay, I'll do news. <laughs> it wasn't like, wow, I've got to do news. Oh my God. So. Yeah. Don't sell yourself short because your book is a page turner. Thank you. you stories within the story and it really moves people it brings them into the picture and i think we can all relate to many of the things that happened in the history of it the way you weave the story great Um, and it i I think well well done i think the irony of the book and in in aside from telling a great story is that the man who really hated news and channel 17 he thought no news was good news i mean the irony of his starting a news revolution is amazing. Yes, it is incredible. No, and when I was being disparaging about myself, just to clarify, I, you know, I started writing books 10 years ago because I burnt out on the news business. And, uh, you know, I was also aging out of the news business, even though at that time I was working in radio. So it was a conflagration of aging out and burning out uh, of daily news. And I really wish I, you know, wish whatever. I also started writing this book because I was like, why did I leave New York as a young person? Why Why did I do that? Because um, I've lived back there, but I don't any longer and I would love to. But, um, but basically, the industry has changed so much. Mm-hmm. And people, for me, the challenge in working in that kind of news environment was always that unless you were the person out in the war zone, which I never aspired to be, you were sitting around, it was very derivative. You were ripping and reading news. And in the, from those, in those last 30 years, that's what so much of news has become. The irony is that there are so many news outlets, uh, but they're all borrowing wire copy and, you know, regurgitating it, Uh, you know, and that's, that's, troubling and that's part of how we got into the situation i think that we're in right now that's a whole other conversation but it's it's just been fascinating for me personally to look and reflect on how media have changed you know you just reading newspaper articles from the 60s and the 70s and even the 80s you remember when newspaper articles jumped to the next page and were long and there were feature writers in small cities not new york and la but you know smaller towns had great fleets of newspaper reporters who were excellent writers who wrote amazing stories about the world immediately around them and that just doesn't exist anymore and that's that has trickled down that impacted i mean television news local news used to be that way too much more so than it is now so it's just it's i I, i'm melancholy for when i read about this these times you know, for not being back a little bit further. I'm happy I'm not that much older, but you know, I I just, especially with this book that I'm writing now that's about the 70s, it's so interesting to think about, um, well, you know, it was, as you know, 70s was not a great time for women yet, but it was um, such an interesting time for news as it evolved and um, as more avenues were opened up. So that's what I I think that's part of the legacy, actually, if you will, of CNN is, is, the good and the bad. And the bad. Can you talk about also how it started with just that? There was one person, always a man, three stations, the men all sounded alike, they looked alike, and they were literally reading 
the newspaper print, right? So it really was just that because that's all they knew how to do. There wasn't a teleprompter, there weren't writers, they weren't into writing news or gathering news. All they were doing was reading news to fill some time on a station. But also, you know, you couldn't have gathered that much news, even if you did want to, because the technology didn't allow it. And that's what I found so compelling about the first president of CNN, because Schoenfeld had worked outside the conventional system for years, and he'd been longing to have the toys and the tools, or for the toys and the tools to be created that allowed him to compete against the networks and uh, his story is so fascinating to me because it, you know, it, it's a lot of people's story in that day uh, who wished that they could go out into the field. You know, Ted Kavanaugh, he, you know, he went out into the field and they had a process film to get it on the air that night. It's mind blowing to imagine that, to think about what that was like. Funny, Judy and I actually come from that world and. Uh... Judy knows the name of Ted Kavanaugh very well. Yes. I remember, you know, as a reporter, we're news broad, so we talk about our backstories um, from time to time. I was starting in the Midwest, Judy did as well. Um, Gina wasn't born, <laughs> our young sister. And we literally had to find three stories a day, go out and take a CP16 or a silent camera, shoot the film, bring it back, put it in a processor, then go into an edit room, glue the film together, splice it up, put your voice on a cart, and then try to get it on the air. And nine times out of 10, the film broke on the air. I mean, <laughs> that news was wise, not so much anymore. And also, do you, are you familiar with Mary Pangalos? She she worked at CBS. She was an example of someone who was a field reporter who did what you did and got X'd out of the reports because they said that women weren't allowed to be in the shot. You know, women couldn't do serious <laughs> news. So X yourself out of the whole story. So I wonder what as, year that was. She was... She was definitely earlier than you guys because she she was a reporter for newsday in 1959 in the early 60s she worked her way off the women's pages into hard news and then she got picked up uh, you know someone saw her being interviewed on television she was attractive and she got put on uh cb wcbs and it must have been the mid to late 60s when she was doing that. I have to go back and look. But anyway, yes, hearing you say that, it's fascinating. I mean, fascinating how it's changed. And how Turner and the birth of CNN has completely changed the landscape of TV news and the way we watch and get our news now. Yeah. But I want to go back a little bit, if I can backstep a bit. And, and what was it like in the beginning of CNN when the face of nobody believing in it, every, they used to call it what the chicken noodle network right. of CNN. Um, they also had all these jokes about it. How did it get from being this sort of understaffed, underpaid, under whatever into CNN? What were the events that took it forward? Well, what's so interesting is that it didn't, it, it's like everything, it didn't just happen overnight. It took, it was a gradual evolution. Um, and and it, it had the staying power to make that gradual evolution, which is so key. Again, you know, if you look at it as a business story, you have to give something time to mature. And basically, everybody marched to Atlanta or wherever they worked for CNN and they just stuck with it if they if they stuck with it 
as different news events unfolded that each time as as that event happened was parallel with the advancement of cable. So CNN started with under two million homes that had it. Uh, that could that could receive it, which was probably a good thing. It's like a soft launch in the web business. Very few people could see it. And as as news events happened in the 80s, the shooting of President Reagan, the explosion of Shuttle Challenger, Tiananmen Square, I'm skipping really quickly, um, then Baghdad, you know, it, there was a financial collapse. But there were, there were stories along the way that trained people, just like our adoption of texting and Twitter and social media sort of happened gradually. It trained people, the viewer, to get interested in it. And as it grew, it got more money as it grew internationally, because that that happened in tandem with all of what I just described. As it was growing, more people were watching, ads were coming in, more money was coming in, more seriousness was introduced. I mean, it wasn't not serious to start, but more capacity was introduced. And, you know, suddenly you've got one of those classic 10 year overnight successes. So it didn't happen right away. And that's what's confusing to people too, because people want to think, oh, I met, we fell in love, and then we went off and had five children. No, it didn't work that way. It was, it was, we met and we courted and we courted and we courted and we, we added more people, more patrons, because cable was ascending in the 80s. And that's, you know, it's extremely unsexy to say, to talk about cable television, but really that's what happened is the cable television happened and it allowed more people to see it. And as it got better and more people could see it, it just sort of hamster wheeled its way to what it is, to what it is today. What it is today. And, and then today you have, is, you know, that is something that I think we're all still trying to to understand and consume. I mean, the one of these news broads here is to really break that down. And I think that if you were 24 hour news now, which is what I spoke about in the beginning and said 24 hour news is as American as apple pie now. I mean, everyone's watching it. Everyone's looking at it for news. And I, I just wonder if there's a responsibility to having that and what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's more than American too. I mean, there are all these copycats around the world, copycat networks, you know, name the country and many of them have their own 24 seven news. And when I lived in Bhutan, which is the place I wrote my first book about that didn't even have TV until 1999, everybody there was addicted to CNN, uh, CNN International. But yes, I think there is a responsibility. And yet I also, uh, you know, and, and also just to step back, the way CNN changed, you know, it got it took that it was that long march to acceptance. And then you have the introduction of Fox, which completely changed the equation. And then you add MSNBC and the whole tenor of the networks had to change to respond to having competition. Um, and that's that's what blew it, in my estimation, for CNN, because they they didn't initially, but then they realized they had to pivot to contradict what Fox was saying. And that's where the journalism went out the window. And we could, you know, the four of us could talk about that forever because of your backgrounds. It's just fascinating. Um, 
this whole conversation that's being had now about, yes, uh, news people should, it should be advocacy. There should be advocacy in news. Um, well, you know, I'm from the old school where I don't think that, adv- I don't want my news with advocacy. Um, certainly in, not that kind of news. You know, if I read something, I know it's, pardon? It's coming from CNN. Anderson Cooper was the first one who went public. Oh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I can't, frankly, an answer to, you know, Gina's question, I just don't like watching news. I don't watch TV news because I don't want someone yelling at me and I don't want someone telling me what they think. Um, I want to be able to figure out what I think by how I source information. I'm old fashioned and I'm also weird. I, I recognize that I'm unusual, but uh, you know I'm also writing these crazy history books with hundreds of footnotes in them, so I'm really crazy. But I I just don't uh, I am really troubled by it, and I don't know what the solution is. If I did, I would you know I would have gone into write that. a book about it. <laughs> I would have written a book about it, and that I could have sold for a lot of money. I you know it just it's it's um it's very it's very confusing to me. A big part of it too is the way the news. Um, and the people who produce the news on these various networks are treated. You know, it's fake news. It's not real because the lines have been so blurred between politics and facts and um, current events that they don't even understand when they watch, let's say if they watch Fox and they're watching a story and there's a point of view on that story, that doesn't mean it's the same point of view that other networks are going to present it as. And that's a big shift that it's a genie that I don't know you can put back in that model. Well, you know, that's why I also found when I lived in Bhutan, it's such a fascinating, because media culture was so new there, there was a movement among the elders to teach media literacy. And, you know, I got, I got a nasty, there was a very nice review Judy saw of my book in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago. And the author said something about how Ted Turner's father blew his brains out and some woman wrote to me and was very angry that I said that Ted Turner's father blew his brains out and how rude of me to refer to suicide that way and I said ma'am I did not say that the reviewer said that about my book and I thought and oh and then the CNN people on the alumni list there were people who were very angry when I first started posting to the CNN alumni list and I said that I was writing this book I was looking for stories would anybody talk to me some guy looked me up and said who are you to write a book this is not your story you weren't there at the beginning I I was there all these other people were there at the beginning and someone chimed in and said you know what she's not she didn't say she was writing a memoir if you look at her resume she's writing a history book she that's what her last book but people my long-winded point there is that people just have no sense of how to read or discern themselves and so that's part of the reason we're in such a crisis right now a because everybody's reactionary and they could just go like this whenever and wherever they want and b because they just don't know how to swim through information and decide you know not to mention that civility is dead and has been for a long time it's it's a constellation of those things that have come together and yes cnn or a 24-hour news network named CNN happened to make that happen because it, it recognized that packaging news in a little bow and serving it to you at 6.30 wasn't necessarily the best idea. Um, the other direction was giving it to you all the time, which may not be the best idea. And anywhere in between, yes, the genie in the bottle 
go. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be a new genie in a different bottle. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it also, the CNN story, while it's exciting, because look what it created, um, I think it has a kind of sad ending for Ted Turner, at least. Yes. I mean, you know, at the end, he, he got screwed out of it at the power. Um, and, well, you know, he took the money, let's put it that way, and then lost the power. But he had to take the money because he took a huge risk and the risk didn't work. And so because he, he gambled and lost, he had to sell a piece of the business. And because he had to sell a piece of the business, he, uh, you know, he kept himself going in the business, but at a diminished rate. And it's the same thing that people say about Ray Kroc. Oh my God, he screwed the brothers. He bought them out for only $2.7 million. Well, no, he didn't screw them. The brother said, give me $2.7 million and you can have McDonald's. And no one knew that McDonald's was gonna become what it did, nor did Ted Turner know when he gave up a lot of his um, interest in, in the company in order to keep it going that what would happen, what would happen. You know, he just knew that not having control was potentially dangerous, but it's important to say that because he, it, it's sad, but he, he, if he hadn't taken that gamble in the mid eighties with CBS and uh, MGM, he could have maybe kept on with it for the rest of his life. And, and that thing that had guided him up until that point, which was, I'm not giving up a piece of this business, um, he wasn't true to that. So anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's just important to point out that that's what happened and he had to live with the consequences. Sad, the man who was on the cover of Time Magazine was on the cover of People as the sexiest man alive. Yeah. Now there's a whole generation who probably has never heard of him and his importance was so great. But on a happier note, um, <laughs> your book was just optioned and it, it into, maybe made into a movie. Yes, it was very exciting that um, we had such interest in this book, even before it was written. It was over a year ago that I had that fabulous fun of getting dressed up and going and dancing with all these different Hollywood people. And I hope it does get made. The people who bought it seem really committed to it. And um, once they actually read the book, they seemed even more excited about it, which is, of course, a thrill. And hopefully that would bring, you know, the story of Ted, although it's not a story that CNN would want to tell about Ted, what I tell in this book, or even what CNN uh, would want to tell about the creation of the network because of all the obstacles and the political incorrectness. Uh, but that's what makes it an interesting story, I think, and I hope, and I think it's a very cinematic one. So absolutely. Okay. I'm going to thank you. But before I do, who should play Ted Turner? See, you know, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I should have been prepared <laughs> with an answer. I am such a pop culture dunce that I honestly, you know, a younger, slightly younger Brad Pitt or George Clooney would be great. I think that I think that Brad Pitt could definitely pull it off, probably even now, even though he's older than Ted was at this time that we're talking about. But how about you? What do you think? I don't. Go ahead. <laughs> I I don't know. I think that um hmm, maybe an unknown, right? So right. No, yeah. But you know, we were talking right before about um, the Jane Fonda effect in life. Um, who, who's going to play her? That will be one of the questions. And did she really change his life? You know, I know much less 
back about that to, era. Yeah, if I if I had focused on that, who knows? You know, what it would could be have gossiping. That's not who you are. <laughs> yeah, and I just you know, it's funny. I think that. I, 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 this is, this says something about the kind of person I am. I just, I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, like she, she's a fascinating woman. Uh, she's had an incredible life and a, and a very interesting uh, dynamic life that she's still living in such an extraordinary way. But in terms of uh, celebrity holds this much interest to me. You're a journalist. Yeah, I, I just, the more, fa I'm with you like about someone who's famous, I to play Ted Turner, if they found some guy who was non unknown, that would be fine. So I don't, I don't know a lot about that world. And I do know that they seem to have a really hot, hot, hot love affair. Um, and you know, Im immense affection to this day for one another, which is admirable and wonderful. Um, but that, and 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 I, I guess you could say that she changed his life. But in some ways, I think it's that she introduced. You know, hopefully, whoever you're with changes your life and introduces new horizons to you. But he he was starting to see those horizons back when he first went to see Fidel Castro in uh, 1982. And as he saw CNN or as he grew CNN internationally. So I don't think that he, um, you know, and the environment, he was always, even when he was an arch Republican, he was an environmentalist, which people find uh, discordant, but I don't think it is actually. I think it's, you know, really true that you can you know, everything is so black and white in our culture now. And he was such an unusual person. So she went to baseball games because he was owning, he owned a baseball team. He was a convert to baseball. <laughs> Pardon? That would get you there. Yeah, right. I mean, right, exactly. My boyfriend's got a baseball team. Great. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, she to me is the least important part of this equation of the time that I'm writing about. Right. And, um, like I say, great admiration for her and their love affair is a fascinating one, but it's also sad to me too, that the first thing that people say when you say Ted Turner, if they know him is, oh, Jane Fonda. No, he had a whole rich, rich life before she came along. Of, of many boo many broads, a lot of booze, <laughs> a lot of bombast the mouth of the south. What did they say it was all those bees, right? Lots of bees. Billboards, blondes, braves. He had a lot of bright days too. But this, is, this is the most incredible book. I saved up, I couldn't put it down. And Lisa, thank you for writing it. Thank you for being our guest today. This has been so much fun. It's a thrill. I'm so excited to have been asked to be in such great company. So thank you. Another great you. you are terrific. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you so much for helping get the word out about my baby. Oh, I can't yeah. wait to read your next one, too. I think you're going to like it. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And it's wow. another thing where it surprised, you know, weaves a lot of stories together. So awesome. it's good. Thank you. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you so ladies. Take care. Bye, Lisa. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the News Broads with Gina Cerrito, Lynn White, and Judy Lick. Our producer is David Levin and audio mixing by Barry Hirschberg.